Of all the movies I've seen and all the books I've read about Richard Nixon and his administration, and there have been many, nothing made my jaw drop like one scene in director Penny Lane's 2013 documentary Our Nixon. It's the evening of January 28, 1972. President Nixon is nearing the end of a successful first term. He will win re-election later in the year in a massive landslide over the Democratic candidate George McGovern. The bungled break-in at the Watergate apartment complex that will lead to his disgrace and resignation is still half a year away. There are still many thousands of U.S. troops in Vietnam, fewer than when he took office, he would tell you, but the anti-war movement is still strong and the us-versus-them mentality we still see in today's red-or-blue-state America is especially prevalent in this White House. And tonight, this White House is the setting for a gala celebration, honoring 50 years of the Reader's Digest, the biggest-selling consumer magazine in the country, and a longtime champion of conservative politics and causes. Some real big names are in attendance, right-wing favorites, the Reverend Billy Graham, Bob Hope, Charles Lindbergh, Two years in the planning, it is a night guaranteed to go off without a hitch. Dinner, the Presidential Medal of Freedom for Reader's Digest founders DeWitt and Lila Bell Wallace, and, oh, some grand old-timey music by none other than the Ray Conniff Singers. One smallish orchestra and sixteen sharp-dressed men and women trained to deliver the hits of yesteryear. And here's President Nixon himself to introduce them. Now to commemorate this event, we have as our special guests tonight the Ray Conniff Singers. It's very difficult to describe them. Most of you have heard them. And if the music is square, it's because I like it square. <laughs> well, there he goes, playing to his audience with a big old wink. Because if the 60s did nothing else, they certainly taught you which side of the hip or square divide you were on. And that's fair enough, Dick. It's your house. It's your party. Ah, here they are, coming to their mics. The ladies, eight of them, are out first in floor-length blue evening gowns. Most of them have their hair up. They are a lovely sight. Oh, the seventh one, a pretty brunette, has long, straight hair almost down to her waist. It makes her stand out, especially from the taller blondes on either side of her. The men are in place at their mics. The band has settled in behind them, and I suppose we'll get started. Wait. The pretty brunette has produced a homemade sign. It reads, Stop the killing. Uh-oh. She's speaking... President Nixon, stop bombing human beings, animals, and vegetation. 
You go to church on Sundays and pray to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were here tonight, you would not dare drop another bomb. Bless the Berrigans and bless Daniel Ellsberg. There are audible gasps from the crowd. Ray Conniff himself, standing downstage of the singers and stunned, grabs a corner of the sign as she speaks, but she calmly rests it away from him and carries on. The girls on either side of her, absolute pros, smile and look out to what I guess is a mid-distance between the audience of dignitaries and themselves. Conniff, recognizing the brunette has finished, can only think to start the first song. You wonder how the rest of the night will go after this. Did that really just happen? At song's end, there's a little applause, and Ray Conniff, understandably, as it turns out, offers a little apology. He didn't know that was going to happen. And then there are shouts from the tuxedoed crowd to throw the bum out and get her out of here. Martha Mitchell, the attorney general's wife, reportedly yells that she ought to be torn limb from limb. Conniff turns back to the brunette and invites her to please leave, which she does, to great applause. So, what the hell? Turns out the singer was a young Canadian-born woman from Toronto named Carol Ferracci, whose family had been in California since she was 18. After high school, she became a professional singer, backing up Johnny Mathis and singing with Percy Faith, and then the Smothers Brothers on their TV show. When Conniff got word of the White House gig and realized he was short one singer, he hired Carol Ferracci through a mutual friend. Carol turned it down at first, saying she wouldn't go sing for a man who was killing people. But then she got an idea and took the job after all. The embarrassment aside, no real harm was done. Nixon's security detained her for a while and asked her many questions, but were careful not to appear too stringent in the eyes of the press and let her go. A couple of days' worth of news stories came and went, and Carol retreated to obscurity. Her point, she said, was to let people know that if an ooby-dooby girl like me has courage, maybe the rest of the people will, too. I have to admit I'm a little torn. There's no denying she embarrassed Ray Conniff and all those other singers and musicians, and, as it turned out, her family. I even toy with the idea that it was rather rude to accept an invitation to a party in order to disrupt it, but clearly her convictions won out that day. She didn't do it to become famous, to boost her career or to get a book deal. She really thought Nixon was wrong, and said so as befitting the times in as peaceful but as public a way as she could. I wouldn't have wanted to be standing next to her up there, but I admire her all right. But what, what do you what do you think? Of course, I was worried, John, I, about about Conniff ordering her out, because and I almost got up. I told Pat later, almost got up to think maybe I better stop it. But I was afraid if I tried to stop her that, that, that I didn't know the whole group. I thought maybe the whole damn group was going to walk out, and uh, but they didn't. They, all of the rest of them were in tears. 
Pretty Much, Episode 41, The Ooby Dooby Girl, written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by the Ray Conniff Singers and Garner Firebird. (laughs) 